Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Ola Christian Grimnes. He is Professor Emeritus of Modern History at the University of Oslo. We will be discussing his newly published book, Norway in the Second World War, Politics, Society, and Conflict, published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishers, 2022. Ola, it is an absolute honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. I appreciate that. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? Uh, excuse me, I was born in Tromsø, which is a town in northern Europe, uh, but my family moved uh, to Oslo after a couple of years, and I really have spent, with a couple of exceptions, I've spent uh, all my life in the Norwegian capital. I uh, grew up in Oslo, I went to school in Oslo. I did my military service, 16 months in, in Oslo. Uh, I studied uh, in Oslo, and in the end, I uh, became a professor of history at the University of Oslo. Uh, two exceptions for this. I spent two years at the uh, Columbia College in New York, uh, where I received a... a a bachelor's degree, and uh, later in the 60s, I spent half a year in uh, St. Petersburg or Leningrad, as it was called at the time. And in Leningrad, I gathered material for my um, for my uh, uh, dissertation, uh, which had picked uh, a theme from Russian history. Um, now, uh, I grew up in a family where both my parents uh, were academics. Uh, my father had uh, taken, uh, studied Latin and Norwegian uh, and uh, history. Uh, and my uh, mom had studied uh, French and German, but then she uh, <coughs> terminated her studies and became a housewife, like most of the women in that generation uh, did. Uh, so I grew up in a um, family uh, with uh, <coughs> humanistic uh, ideals and interests, and I myself, uh, at an early age, felt attracted to a study of languages, of literature, of linguistics, and uh, after some years also history, which then became my uh, favorite sub- subject. And from, I don't know, the age of 
20 or so, uh, is have been my really my main subject history throughout uh, my <laughs> life up to now. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I, as a historian, I uh, I did different things. I wrote a book about the Norwegian flag. I wrote a book about a captain of history. But my main interests, uh, with some on and offs, my main interest uh, throughout the dec decades was really uh, the subject of the book, Norway during the Second World War. And uh, after I retired uh, and had more time to, to write and study, I felt that what I ought to do to uh, sort of uh, uh, crown my, my academic career would be, would be to write a, a um, book which covered all the important aspects of uh, uh, Norwegian history during the Second World War. Uh, not only the military, not only the political, but also the economic aspects, cultural uh, aspects, demographic aspects, and so on. Uh, there is there are more than 30 years since a book like that has been uh, written, and I have felt that there was really a need for a new book, partly because there, uh, there would be uh, new source material, and partly also because uh, new generations really ask new questions and there were new attitudes uh, sort of to uh, the study of, of the war. So uh, altogether, I felt that uh, the time uh, was there to uh, make a, an overall study of uh, Norway during the Second World War in which all the aspects uh, were <coughs> integrated and made into a, a, an integrated account of Norwegian history during the war. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? I would say that uh, there aren't primary uh, subjects uh, I would rather say, as I already mentioned, uh, that uh, uh, <clears throat> the book covers all the main aspects of the history. The, it covers the politics, the military history, uh, the economic, economic history, so, and so on. And so the story I, want, I wanted to tell is really uh, the story of an integrated history or an history which I have integrated uh, into uh, a, a whole. And so then uh, this could be my interpre interpretation of Norwegian history. And then uh, there'll be another one or two or three decades and there will be uh, hopefully a new book like this, which will uh, study this from a different angle and probably with new uh, problems which arise. What new insights about Vidkun Quisling's biography are found in your book? Perhaps uh, uh, the special relationship that there was between Quisling and Hitler. Uh, I have emphasized that more, I think, than other authors. Uh, 
Quisling met with Hitler in December 1939. That was some months after the Second World War had uh, broken out. Uh, certain circles in Berlin had invited Quisling, uh, especially the uh, the uh, chief of the navy. Uh, and so Quisling uh, was pre presented to Hitler, and uh, Hitler took an interest in him. In him. Uh, which is perhaps uh, a, bit a bit strange because Quisling uh, was a rather taciturn personality, but uh, somehow uh, Hitler, or, or what Hitler was grateful for was that uh, Quisling pointed to the danger of England uh, <coughs> invading Norway. And if the uh, English, the Great Britain, was stationed in Norway, this would uh, block the uh, exit of uh, German shipping from uh, the from uh, uh, the Baltic Sea, and it would be much harder for the German navy to attack uh, the sea lanes between Great Britain and uh, and uh, the United States. Um, so Hitler later said, and in this he probably was sincere, that he felt uh, a certain gratitude for uh, to, towards Quisling because Quisling had pointed out this danger. Uh, and uh, we can see that after Hitler's meeting with Quisling, um, he started uh, planning uh, an invasion of, of Norway. Later, uh, <clears throat> after the invasion of Norway, which took place on the 9th of April 1940, uh, at that date in the evening, Quisling uh, launched a coup in the, the Norwegian capital. Uh, late evening on 19th, uh, late evening on the day of the invasion, he launched a political coup, said that he was the uh, prime minister of Norway and uh, that uh, everyone had to obey him and that there should be no resistance against the German invasion. Uh, Hitler had not been uh, informed about uh, this coup in advance, but once he learned about it, he immediately supported uh, Quisling in this coup. Uh, the coup didn't last very long because uh, what uh, the Germans found was that uh, uh, Quisling's uh, coup was uh, thought of as a betrayal uh, of, of Norway and there was much indignation in the population uh, against Hitler for this coup and this uh, stiffened the will of resistance uh, uh, against the German invading forces. So after uh, six days, uh, Quisling, uh, Hitler dropped the Quisling, but uh, he was uh, still interested in promoting his Quisling. And in the summer of 1940, when there were negotiations of how uh, the new government in occupied Norway should be, uh, in these negotiations, uh, Hitler 
insisted that Quisling and, uh, and his Norwegian fascist party uh, should have an important uh, 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 post posting. Uh, this was against the German authorities in Oslo because they saw that uh, Quisling uh, were considered by as a traitor by most Norwegians, uh, and uh, this was not, uh, and this was detri detrimental to the uh, German cause. But uh, Hitler insist insisted, and uh, when the new uh, occupation government was set up on the twenty fifth of September in nineteen forty, um, uh, the new government uh, had. Uh, members of Quisling's party on almost all the ministerial posts. So the new government was, uh, from the beginning, really a Nazi, a Norwegian Nazi government. Um, Hitler, uh, Hitler and Quisling uh, probably had agreed that he should not uh, be the prime minister right away. It would be good to wait for a while. But uh, on the 1st of February 1942, Hitler uh, granted uh, Quisling his uh, a post as prime minister uh, of the government in Norway. And then for the rest of the war, he uh, remained uh, a, a minister, <laughs> the, German, the Norwegian prime minister. So um, this uh, line, which I have followed here is perhaps uh, the most important new insight in the book uh, concerning uh, Quisling. Can you describe the virtues and vices of Vidkun Quisling as a political leader? What were his strengths and weaknesses? I was that, I would argue that his strength uh, was in the field of ideology. Whistling really was an ideologist. It was he more than uh, anyone else in his party that uh, formulated the uh, ideolo ideological tenets uh, of the party. There were different currents within the party, uh, but uh, in a way he stood above those currents and, and, and uh, integrated them. Um, he, he was a good, at least his adherents thought so, he was good at drawing the long historical lines and he was good at placing uh, the daily uh, work of, <coughs> of his party members, place it within a historical framework where, which uh, made people feel that uh, they were really on history's uh, side. Uh, now, most of the Norwegian population uh, did not uh, adhere to this uh, uh, ideology, his fascist ideology, but to some he did appeal uh, with his uh, way of presenting uh, fascism. Also, uh, his uh, brand of uh, fascism uh, had uh, at least two special aspects. In general, his ideology was very much like uh, German National Socialism, the, uh, uh, the fascism that uh, Quisling propagated 
uh, was uh, nationalist, uh, it was anti-Semitic, it was racist, it was anti-liberal, it was uh, even to some extent anti-capitalist. Uh, now, uh, this was common to uh, more or less to fascists in, in general. Uh, but uh, what was uh, to some extent at least special to Quisling's fascism was the uh, way he put not on only on history, but the uh, uh, Norse history of the Norwegian pe people, the Viking history uh, of Norwegian people. Uh, <coughs> this uh, appealed to German National Socialist also, but after all, German National Socialists did not have a Viking age in their history. Uh, and so the whole Norse heritage was something that Hitler, uh, <laughs> that Quisling drew upon. Uh, the other uh, peculiar feature, not peculiar, but special feature of Quisling's uh, fascism uh, was uh, the uh, <laughs> well, it was something he had borrowed from Italian fascism uh, that they ought that um, there ought to be some kind of new constitutions which should be built on the organizations in commercial and economic life. Uh, and he tried to set up a new national assembly, which was uh, 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 based on the uh, organizations in commercial and, and uh, uh, cultural life also. Uh, this was not original, it was, uh, he took it from Italian fascism, fascism but uh, it uh, made him differ from uh, from the German National Socialism. Now, what were his weaknesses? Well, he was not a good politician. He had uh, little sense of uh, of, of uh, uh, <coughs> uh, had little sense of uh, political negotiations, political horse trading, of. Uh, uh, not, a, not a practical man in, in politics. Uh, if against opponents, uh, he very often became uh, taciturn. He didn't say anything. He just shut up uh, to the despair of his... Uh, adherents who would have wanted him to act strongly and really be able to discuss with his opponents, but he wasn't good at that. Who was Johann Nygaardsvold? Can you describe his biography and his importance? Johann Nygaardsvold uh, was uh, the prime minister, uh, prime minister of Norway during the war. He was the prime minister uh, in exile, and uh, he was the prime minister at the time when the Germans invaded Norway. Uh, he uh, started out as a uh, sawmill worker uh, at an early age, uh, became member of the Labour Party and gradually grew in importance in the Labour Party. Uh, 
1935, he uh, established uh, the first uh, important uh, labor government in Norway. There had been an, a brief interlude in 1928, uh, but really uh, social democracy, Labour Party established itself as a governing, governing party in 1935, when uh, Nigel Schwab became the prime minister of a Labour government. <clears throat> and you can also say that from that time on, uh, social democracy uh, was really introduced uh, in Norway, uh, pervading uh, Norwegian society, and after the war uh, was the mainstay of the build-up of uh, the Norwegian welfare state. The government which he uh, established in 1935 uh, was a reformist uh, uh, government. It uh, introduced uh, different social reforms, and uh, he. <clears throat> but then, uh, at the time of the German invasion, uh, the fate of the government was suddenly uh, turned. Uh, he himself, uh, on the morning of the 9th of April, at the day of the invasion, uh, wanted to be relieved of his uh, post as a prime minister. But at that time, there was no... Uh, uh, there was no time to do that. He had to carry on as the prime minister. And the, uh, he was the prime minister when uh, the king and the government decided not to surrender to the Germans, but to take up arms against them. And then continued as a uh, uh, fighting uh, government uh, for five years. The first two months during the military campaign in Norway in 1940, and then five years in exile in Great Britain. Uh, Nigros was uh, uh, leadership as, uh, before the war uh, has won general acclaim. Uh, he is uh, reforms uh, where uh, have been considered. Uh, well-formed reforms, and he has a good reputation uh, concerning what he did before the war. Uh, less so uh, when it comes to his premiership during the war. Uh, he uh, was not a very strong uh, leader. He uh, uh, felt insecure uh, because, partly because, uh, because he knew that his government uh, was heavily criticized at home in, uh, because uh, most people thought that the foreign policy and the uh, defense policy of the government before the German invasion uh, had a lot of flaws. And he knew that he would be examined by an investigation, investigating committee after the war. Uh, so uh, he didn't really feel comfortable, I think, during these five years. But, you know, but the, on the other hand, he stayed on. Uh, he did not resign. Uh, he made uh, several moves during the war, which uh, can be considered as, uh, as uh, good moves. And perhaps the most important thing, uh, he provided stability and continuity. Uh, the government uh, 
continued uh, with a, a leader <coughs> and, 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 and most of his uh, ministers. And uh, so that is uh, one thing for which he, you might say that he can be applauded, this, uh, this continuity and stability which he gave the government. What were the consequences for Norway of the invasion of Denmark by Nazi Germany? Well, as you know, uh, Denmark and Norway were invaded on the same day, according to the same plans. Uh, unlike Norway, Denmark decided uh, after only a few hours to surrender. Uh, they felt that they could not resist the German military forces. Um, and so... Uh, the Germans invaded and occupied Denmark uh, very uh, rapidly, uh, and they this gave them a, a um, an advantage which the Germans had planned. They knew that uh, the troops with which they uh, invaded Norway, uh, these troops were very few in the beginning. Uh, the success of a military camp campaign really rested on uh, transporting uh, reserves from Germany, military reserves, which could carry on the, the campaign. Uh, now, transporting uh, military reserves from Germany to uh, Norway uh, to occupy all of the country uh, was uh, risky because uh, the, uh, the boats would have to pass the English Navy and there was a great chance that a good many of the reserves, uh, the boats which uh, transported the reserves, uh, would be bombed or torpedoed. Uh, this was all made much more easy when uh, Germany had occupied Denmark because they, they sent their troops all along uh, Denmark, northwards in Denmark to the northern tip of Denmark, and then they could transport it, transport them uh, over to, uh, to Norway. They still would have to transport them uh, by sea, but the distance was much uh, less. And also the British uh, warships were wary uh, entering uh, the narrow uh, straits uh, or narrow uh, part of sea between Denmark and, uh, and Norway. So um, the um, military campaign of the Germans in uh, Norway in 1940 was much, uh, became much easier uh, because uh, they had also uh, established themselves uh, in Denmark. After uh, the uh, occupation of Norway, I would say that Denmark uh, played a role in Norwegian history in two or three ways. Um, Denmark, as you know, is an agricultural country, uh, so Denmark could export uh, agricultural products to Norway. Uh, Norway did not produce uh, enough agricultural products uh, to feed its own uh, population. So the produce from Denmark was uh, welcomed. Also, uh, Norway received a good deal of humanitarian aid from, from uh, Denmark. Um, 
in the first years of the war, there was not much uh, recent assistance in Denmark, but from 1943, uh, <clears throat> a very militant and strong resistance movement grew up in Denmark. And uh, this uh, resistance uh, became an inspiration to the Norwegian resistance movement, uh, especially those who wanted a more radical resistance policy with more emphasis on violent actions, uh, especially to then uh, the uh, Danish resistance uh, was an inspiration. Can you describe the German attack on Norway in 1940? How did it specifically unfold? Well, the attack uh, was not an attack on one particular point after which the uh, troops would spread out and expand. The uh, Germans wanted to get a grip on the whole of Norway immediately. Uh, so they uh, had decided to invade and conquer um, five uh, different, no, six uh, towns in Norway, uh, all the most important towns in Norway. So they, uh, in the early hours of 9th of April 1940, they invaded Oslo, the capital. They invaded Christian Sand, which is the uh, southern town. Invaded Bergen, which is on the west coast, the second largest uh, city. And invaded Trondheim in the middle of Norway. Um, then uh, that would be uh, one, one, two, three, four. Uh, uh, towns, uh, and then there was a fifth, not a sixth, but the fifth town was Narvik, which was a town which was uh, situated in the far north. And uh, the reasons for uh, the anxiousness, the eagerness of the Germans to uh, invade also Narvik was that uh, in, from Narvik, uh, Swedish iron ore, iron ore was transported by ship to Germany, and this Swedish iron ore was very important for the uh, German armaments uh, industry. So the uh, Germans were uh, very anxious to uh, control uh, this uh, this town from the very start, so that they were sure that the uh, iron ore could be uh, transported uh, <coughs> all along as, as it used to. Um, so after, uh, in the course of the first day of invasions, the uh, Germans had uh, acquired uh, control of all these uh, important towns uh, of, of Norway. And from those uh, bridgeheads, they uh, could um, expand uh, and uh, uh, so that take uh, each could take from each town uh, the Germans could take their part of the country. Um, the most uh, important towns were Oslo and uh, Trondheim, which, uh, if you think about the map, Trondheim is. Uh, in the middle of Norway, uh, uh, on a straight line northwards from Oslo. And the main uh, target of the German uh, forces was to have forces from Oslo and forces from Trondheim 
uh, combine, meet each other, and tie up uh, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and after uh, three weeks, something like three weeks, they were able to uh, do that. Uh, troops from Trondheim in the north and from Oslo in the south uh, met each other. Uh, and then really the whole uh, Allied campaign in South Norway was given up. The, uh, the British and the French uh, felt that uh, there was no use any longer in uh, trying to defend the South of Norway. Uh, but they kept on fighting for Narvik. So there was another month at Narvik. Uh, uh, <coughs> before the Allied also uh, quit uh, Narvik. But at Narvik, the Allied forces were victorious. They, uh, they, they uh, forced the German soldiers out of the, time, out of the time, and there was really only a matter of time before the Germans at Narvik would have to give up and uh, cross the border into Sweden. Uh, but in the end, uh, the Allies also abandoned Narvik because at that time the Germans had started their uh, campaign on the continent. They had attacked France, the Netherlands and Belgium, and they needed all the troops on the continent and could no longer uh, <coughs> have the luxury of, of fighting on, on Norwegian soil. So uh, that is about uh, the general pattern of the German uh, invasion. It, by the way, it was an invasion which altogether took uh, two months, uh, uh, somewhat less than a month in South Norway, uh, two months uh, in Northern Norway. Uh, and the Norwegians are uh, often proud of this because they point to the fact that uh, I think uh, the Netherlands was uh, conquered in five days, I believe, and France was conquered in three weeks, I believe. But here <laughs> it took two months before the Germans had uh, conquered all along. Can you tell us about Swedish-Norwegian relations? during the time of Norway's occupation by Germany? When the Second World War broke out, all the uh, Nordic or Scandinavian countries declared their neutrality. They had done that during the First World War, and now they repeated this. Uh, they wanted to stay neutral uh, during the war which had broke, broken out. Uh, the only country which succeeded in maintaining its neutrality was Sweden. Uh, Norway was occupied, Denmark was occupied, and Finland, Finland sided with the, the Germans and uh, fought on against the uh, Russians on the German side. But Sweden was able to maintain its neutrality. Uh, this neutrality was uh, much influenced by the uh, fortunes of the war. So as long as the uh, Germans were victorious, that was until the, the uh, Battle of Stalingrad and the Battle of Kursk uh, in 1943. Up to that time, the uh, Swedish neutrality would slant very heavily towards German and 
uh, heeded German interests very much, uh, granted concessions to uh, Germany. Uh, the most important of which perhaps was <clears throat> that Germany was given the right to transport uh, troops uh, across Swedish uh, territory between Germany and Norway. And this was a great advantage to the Germans because then they could uh, evade uh, the North Sea, could evade the ocean where the British Navy uh, uh, would be uh, powerful. Then the uh, fortunes of the war uh, changed and in the Latin part of the war, the Swedish neutrality uh, slanted uh, even more towards the Allies than it has slanted toward the, towards the, uh, the Germans. And so the relations between Sweden and Norway was uh, influenced by this. There was uh, a, certainly a distance um, and uh, even animosity between Swedes and Norwegians in the first years of the war uh, and uh, much uh, more cooperation and understanding from 1943 on. If you look at, uh, if you want to have the overall picture of what Sweden meant to Norway, uh, there are several points that ought to be mentioned. Uh, one point, which was very important, was that uh, Sweden was there as a free haven for Norwegians who wanted to escape from occupied Norway. And uh, Sweden uh, received uh, about 50,000 Norwegians who crossed the border uh, in secrecy, of course, uh, into Sweden. Uh, also, Sweden uh, played a role as, uh, an, uh, as a link of communion uh, between the occupied Norway, the resistance in occupied Norway, and the government in exile. Uh, messages uh, could be sent uh, through Sweden to the government in London, and London can send these messages to the resistance uh, in uh, Norway. Uh, also, gradually, uh, uh, and very much so in the last year of the war, uh, Norwegian resistance could be in different ways assisted from Swedish soils. Um, and not least of all, in 1943 to 45, Sweden uh, allowed the Norwegians to build up uh, an army, a military army on Norwegian soil. So by the end of the war, uh, about 14,000 uh, Norwegian soldiers uh, had been trained on trained on Norwegian on Swedish territory. And uh, when the uh, liberation came, they uh, moved into uh, Norway and took up the positions in the different parts uh, of Norway. What new perspectives does your study reveal regarding Crown Princess Martha? Crown Princess uh, Martha <clears throat> um, fled uh, from uh, the uh, Norway, uh, right after the German invasion, uh, she and her three children uh, escaped into Sweden. Martha was uh, the crown princess, uh, and uh, she was a Swedish princess, so she, she was received by her family when she arrived in, 
in um, in Sweden uh, with her children. Uh, the, uh, her uh, husband, the crown prince, uh, and the king uh, continued in Norway because they uh, they had to be 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 there after the the government had decided to oppose the Germans. But uh, crown prince uh, princess. Marta with the children stayed uh, in uh, Stockholm uh, during the summer of 1940 and uh, there she played a certain political role. Uh, in the summer of 1940 there were important circles in Oslo in the capital which wanted to establish a new government uh, which uh, would be a competitor to the government in London a new government which should be legitimized by the National Assembly. And uh, some people felt that uh, it might be a good, good idea this, uh, that this new National Assembly, this new government, uh, uh, <clears throat> might also be supported by part of the royal family. So there was uh, a tendency to ask uh, Marta to move to Oslo in order sort of to be there if the new government uh, materialized and perhaps she could carry on uh, the legacy of the uh, monarchy uh, in, in uh, Oslo. Uh, the king, the Swedish king, uh, also wanted it. He saw this as a good solution. But when the uh, king, Norwegian king and crown prince in London heard about this, they immediately said, said that uh, this should not happen. Uh, you have to uh, leave Sweden as soon as possible and uh, travel to the United States and stay there. We can't have you in Sweden uh, and being part of uh, political maneuvering in uh, in Oslo. Uh, so then she um, uh, she was picked up. Uh, he, her, she and her children were picked up by a, an American ship uh, in northern Finland and transported across the ocean to the United States. Uh, in the uh, United States, she also played uh, a certain role. role because uh, she became a friend of uh, the uh, our president Roosevelt, the American president, uh, and uh, through through her influence on him, she could uh, <coughs> work for the uh, Norwegian cause, uh, for instance, uh, by uh, uh, having Roosevelt. Uh, uh, assign uh, the American ships to the uh, Norwegian uh, merchant uh, uh, fleet. Um, there's been a uh, film uh, which was uh, put on TV in, in uh, one or two years ago called The Atlantic Crossing. Uh, which was concentrated on Marta and what she did in in um, in the United States. Uh, the film in itself, I think, became uh, popular, but it also received much criticism, and I myself, uh, but also criticized the film uh, on two points. 
one point is that I don't think there was any sexual relationship between Martha and uh, the uh, American president. There are no sources to support that. Uh, there was a friendship uh, between the two, and uh, the president certainly liked to be in the company of Martha, and Martha liked him too, and also at the same time she could work for the Norwegian cause. Uh, and second, um, second, she uh, was not as important as the film uh, meant her to be. Uh, in the film, one gets the impression that uh, Martha really more or less uh, controlled American policy. Uh, she, of course, she did not have any impact on uh, the American uh, policy and American war policy. Um, so that's it. Can you tell us about the activities of King Hakon VII during World War II? Yes. Um, first of all, uh, I would make two points, uh, especially. Uh, at, uh, on the 9th and 10th of April, when the Germans had uh, invaded Norway and, uh, and were trying to expand from their bridgeheads, uh, the Norwegian government had to make uh, a fatal uh, decision whether to take up arms against the Germans or or not or surrender, as the Danes had done. And in the discussions about this, uh, the king uh, was very clear. He wanted the government to take up the uh, take up arms against the, uh, the Germans. The, uh, the government and uh, uh, politicians surrounding the government were more in doubt in, in the beginning. But once they learned about uh, Quisling's coup, they all felt that uh, Norway could not surrender. Uh, and so they uh, took up arms against uh, Germany. Uh, the king uh, certainly uh, influenced the government in this, uh, but the government, the Norwegian government, was really the one which took uh, the decision. And <clears throat> And, uh, uh, and, uh, and the king uh, certainly did on his own, certainly did not decide this. Uh, there has been a tendency in popular literature, in popular films, to emphasize the political role of the king uh, in these fatal days of April 1940, um, saying more or less that uh, it was really the king alone who took the decision uh, to resist the Germans. Uh, uh, there's a saying, the king's no, Congress nay, meaning that the king said no to the Germans, and that was it. Uh, that is not good history writing. Uh, the king was at one with his government, and they together took uh, the decisions to oppose uh, the Germans. Um, the king was very important as a unifying symbol, a national symbol during the war. Uh, he was such a symbol uh, in exile, uh, sy symbolized uh, the uh, Norwegian war effort against the Germans. Uh, and uh, he was also uh, 
popular among the uh, uh, populations at home. So he was really popular both uh, on the external front and the, uh, the home front. Uh, and uh, in this, uh, he was uh, important. He was not important politically because he uh, did not interfere in politics. He was uh, very adamant on that point. Uh, the king should only act as a symbol. Uh, he should not meddle in the politics of the government, which was different from other uh, <coughs> queens or, uh, or kings. Uh, for instance, the uh, queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands. Uh, she also uh, escaped to Great Britain with uh, her government. She she meddled in politics and could be uh, could disagree with the government. But Hawkon explicitly refrained from that. I would not meddle in politics. It would act as a symbol. Uh, he visited. Uh, the uh, often together with the crown pits, he visited um, the German uh, the Norwegian forces that were set up in Great Britain. They, uh, and uh, pictures of these visits uh, were published, and uh, some of the, the pictures were put into small newspapers, um, pamphlets really, which were smuggled into Norway. Uh, so that the uh, parts of the population could also see him acting as the uh, uh, <coughs> leading commander of the uh, Norwegian military forces. Who who was Nicholas von Falkenhorst? Can you describe his significance? Nicholas von Falkenhorst was the commander-in-chief of the invading uh, German forces in 1940. Uh, Hitler had chosen, his, uh, chosen him to be a session commander uh, in February 1940. He had called Falkenhorst uh, to his uh, office and uh, then uh, asked the Falkenhorst uh, how Falkenhorst uh, what he would do if he was to uh, um, if if there was to be a, an attack on Norway and uh, Falkenhorst uh, answered this um, <coughs> and uh, then he was uh, appointed commander of the invading uh, forces. Um, after the invasion, he uh, continued as the uh, commander-in-chief uh, of the army and uh, also held a position as so-called Wehrmachtsbefehlshaber, which uh, in practice meant that he was uh, also a... Uh, <coughs> also was in a position uh, where he could uh, integrate uh, and collaborated with the other services, with the uh, Navy and with the Air Force. Um, he uh, continued in this position for most of the, uh, of the, of the war uh, until late uh, in uh, 1944 when he was relieved of his post and some other offices were appointed to his post as commander-in-chief in Norway. 
um, the Falkenhorst was uh, a first and foremost a professional German or Prussian officer. Um, he did not meddle in politics. Um, there, and uh, unlike some of the other German chiefs, the uh, chief of the Navy, Admiral Reder uh, meddled in politics, but Falkenhorst uh, kept away from that. Uh, he was uh, not uh, a convinced uh, national socialist. Um, he was not uh, an ideologist or interested in ideology, uh, I think. He was, as I said, first and foremost a soldier. But he was a soldier who uh, was in the service of a national socialist state. So in that way, uh, one could say that he supported national socialist socialism and supported it in a way of his uh, military uh, capacity. Uh, he's um, in one way, in one way, his uh, task was uh, I wouldn't say easy, but his task uh, as commander in occupied Norway was not the task of an officer who was uh, in combat. There were, until the autumn of 1944, there were really not any military operations on Norwegian-occupied territory. Uh, the only exception was uh, the coast, uh, the Norwegian coast. Uh, Norway has a long coast, and this coast was uh, important to the Germans uh, as uh, a, uh, <coughs> as a seafaring lane where they had to trans transport uh, many of the troops and much of the goods. Uh, because uh, railways in Norway were scarce, the roads were not very good. Uh, so this, uh, the traffic along the coast was important to the Germans. And there, there were real uh, military operations. The Allies uh, bombed and torpedoed the uh, German traffic along the coast. Uh, but otherwise, uh, Norway really was a quiet place. And uh, uh, the main or one of the main tasks of Falcon Wars was simply to establish and solidify uh, the German presence in Norway. Uh, a presence which rested on many soldiers, uh, uh, about 350,000 uh, German soldiers were stationed in Norway, a formidable, formidable force, uh, but not a fighting force. Uh, he uh, contributed to the uh, building of more railways and, uh, and roads, and especially uh, he was interested in uh, building up the so-called fortress on Norway, Festung Norwegen. Fortifications uh, were built all along the uh, Norwegian coast uh, so that they could uh, throw back uh, any uh, allied attempt to uh, reconquer uh, Norway. The um, uh, Falkenhaus was the head of uh, one or three uh, German institutions of uh, Norway. He was the head of the military force of Wehrmacht, 
Uh, and of course, this was the most powerful institution in, in Norway. The second institution was a German civilian administration headed by Terbofen, who had uh, who bore the title of uh, Reichskommissar, uh, a commissar. Uh, he was really the uh, dictator of civilian Norway. He had no say in military matters, but he was responsibility. Uh, he was responsible for uh, the Norwegian population for all civil affairs in uh, Norway. Uh, he was an ad ardent uh, national socialist, and there was also always some tension between uh, Falkenhorst and uh, Tarbofen. Uh, I think they respected each other, but uh, uh, and uh, they had in common that they both uh, wanted to serve Hitler uh, or or the or Hitler's uh, state. Uh, but otherwise, there were uh, conflicts uh, between them. Um, the third institution was the German police, the German SS and police, headed by Redis, which is a less known person. Uh, but Van uh, Falkenhaus did not have uh, that much to do with the uh, SS and police because that was more for uh, internal affairs in Norway. Uh, so altogether, Falkenhorst had to face uh, two other uh, heads of German institutions in Norway, uh, civil administration with, uh, and uh, the police administration. Can, can you describe the history of the Norwegian merchant fleet during World War II? Um, Norway uh, had a large merchant fleet, actually the fourth largest merchant fleet in the world. Uh, and uh, this uh, merchant fleet uh, uh, comprised uh, a very modern tanker fleet, uh, which was uh, particularly important uh, during the war. Uh, the whole of almost the whole of this uh, fleet uh, were sailing abroad, and so uh, when Norway was uh, uh, taken by the Germans, the merchant fleet uh, could uh, serve under the Norwegian government in exile uh, and did a very good job there. Uh, if you are, if you ask what uh, what was the most important contribution of Norway to the Allied war effort, uh, then it was the contribution of the merchant fleet. It was re really a sort of fourth uh, service, along with the uh, three military services. Uh, the merchant fleet was particularly important uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it took part in the convoys which sailed from uh, the United States to England, um, sailing with petrol and oil, on which uh, Great Britain was uh, heavily um, dependent. And in the beginning of the war, in 41-42, 
one third of uh, Great Britain's uh, oil and petrol import was transported by Norwegian uh, ships. So this was really an important contribution to the uh, to the uh, Allied effort. Um, it also, uh, and this was a very, it was dangerous. Uh, the Atlantic route was always a dangerous route. Uh, the convoys were attacked by German submarines and German planes. Uh, Norwegian uh, merchant fleet also participated in the Mediterranean route. It sailed through the Mediterranean to Malta, uh, providing Malta uh, with um, the necessary supplies. And all along the route in the Mediterranean, uh, the fleet was attacked and it was also attacked while it was uh, in harbour uh, at Malta. Also, the uh, merchant fleet um, served as support vessels for many of the uh, Allied operations. We just uh, took part in the uh, uh, evacuation at Dunkirk in uh, 1940, uh, when all the uh, Allied soldiers uh, at Dunkirk, uh, had to be transported across the Channel to Great Britain, and uh, some Norwegian ships uh, from the merchant fleet uh, took part in this. Uh, Norwegian uh, merchant ships also uh, transported uh, either troops or material or both uh, to North Africa. They participated in the um, landing of uh, troops in southern France and uh, <clears throat> and certainly also uh, participated in the D-Day when on the 6th of June uh, Allied troops uh, entered uh, northern France. In the Far East, uh, Norwegian ships uh, transported American soldiers from the western coast of America to uh, the Philippines uh, and to uh, Australia, and also transported uh, soldiers to the many uh, Japanese-occupied islands, uh, which uh, had to be cleared by Allied soldiers. Uh, so all in all, uh, the merchant fleet is certainly something uh, the Norwegian can be proud of. Uh, well, <clears throat> It had its costs, um, several thousand uh, Norwegian sailors uh, perished uh, during their service on uh, the merchant fleet. In your opinion, why does Norway not receive central attention in many histories of the Holocaust? Why is Norway considered a peripheral theater of the final solution? Probably uh, the uh, small number of Jews in Norway. Uh, there were at the beginning of the war 2,000 uh, Jews in Norway. Uh, this is a, certainly a small number compared to the many millions uh, who perished uh, in the Holocaust. And uh, this probably is the main reason why they uh don't play such uh don't play any important role in in what has been written about uh, the holocaust in europe 
other two uh, thousand Jews, eighteen uh, hundred, uh, were killed or perished in the in the Holocaust, and twelve hundred were uh, saved their lives, mostly by escaping uh, to Sweden. There are uh, a couple of uh, features which are uh, characteristic uh, of uh, the Norwegian Holocaust compared to, to other countries. One, one uh, such feature is that the Holocaust uh, in Norway uh, was implemented very fast. Most of it took place within uh, the confines of a couple of two months in the autumn of 1940. October and November, uh, the majority of the Jews, uh, which the Nazis could get hold of, uh, were arrested and deported. Uh, some others were taken in February 43, but altogether uh, the Holocaust was carried out very uh, rapidly. Uh, the second feature is that um, uh, in Norway, the Jews were arrested by Norwegian police. The uh, German police did not arrest the, the, the uh, Jews in Norway. The arrest was uh, done by Norwegian uh, police. Uh, it was, of course, controlled by German police, but the uh, very arrest was uh, completed uh, by Norwegian police. Uh, now, this was not ordinary uh, Norwegian police. Uh, the Nazi government, the Norwegian Nazi government, had set up its own uh, political police uh, uh, on the pattern of Gestapo in, in Germany. And this um, Norwegian political police, Stapo, as it was called, uh, was the part of the uh, police force which uh, arrested uh, the Jews. Uh, of course, there has been uh, discussions, uh, also heated discussions in Norway about uh, the Holocaust and uh, uh, the uh, resistance leadership in uh, Norway has been accused of uh, not heeding uh, the signals uh, which uh, indicated that there would be uh, an arrest of the Jews. And uh, it has also, also been accused of not, being, not helping the Jews uh, in their escape uh, to Sweden. Um, I shan't go into this discussion really now, uh, as in all countries uh, uh, where the Holocaust took place, there has been a discussion on, on uh, responsibility. Uh, everyone uh, knows that the uh, ultimate responsibility lay with the Germans, but uh, the the uh, topic of discussion has always been to what extent the, the non-National uh, Socialist parts of the population, uh, how did the uh, general population contribute to the Holocaust? And uh, we have had the discussion about that in Norway, as well as in, uh, in other countries. Can you compare and contrast 
the Holocaust in Denmark with the Holocaust in Norway? How were Jews treated in Denmark in comparison and contrast with Norway? Uh, this uh, comparison is uh, interesting and it's uh, often made uh, because in Denmark uh, almost all the Jews uh, escaped. Uh, there, were, there was no real Holocaust in, in Denmark in the sense that, uh, that the Jews were deported and, and perished. Almost all the Danish Jews uh, were saved. Uh, unlike in Norway, as I said, where about one third of the Jews uh, perished in the in the Holocaust. Now, the main reason for the difference between uh, the two countries uh, is the difference uh, in government. In Denmark, uh, when the Germans invaded uh, Denmark. Uh, they uh, said that uh, we'll have to be here with our soldiers uh, <clears throat> because of military necessity, but we will not interfere with the, the democratic uh, government in Denmark. Uh, uh, and they kept their word uh, for two or three years. Uh, so then Denmark had a democratic parliamentary government uh, until August 1943. There were even free elections in Denmark in uh, March 1943. Uh, <clears throat> and this was very different, of course, from uh, Norway, uh, where the Norwegian Nazis had taken over the government and they had, with the police, uh, arrested the, uh, uh, the Norwegian Jews. Uh, the Danish government, uh, the legitimate Danish government, uh, shielded uh, the Jews, uh, kept their hand over, over the Jews. And as long as the government existed, that is until the August of 1943, um, uh, uh, it uh, was, not, was not willing to hand the uh, Danish Jews over to the Germans, and they really uh, resisted this. In uh, 1943, uh, there was a wave of resistance. In August 1943, there was a wave of resistance in Denmark, and this resistance uh, blew up to such an extent uh, that uh, Germany felt that it had to take over government. So from uh, August 1943, there was no longer a legitimate uh, Danish government. And that was the time uh, for the Germans to uh, try and uh, get hold of the Jews and carry out the Holocaust, even in Denmark. Uh, but it turned out uh, first uh, that the German really didn't have a very efficient police for that because the Germans didn't uh, hadn't, hadn't built up uh, a, a an important police in Denmark. It had not been necessary as Denmark. Uh, it uh, was a quiet country with very little resistance. Uh, so uh, once uh, the uh, Danish government uh, withdrew, uh, the Germans really had uh, efficient enough police forces to round up the Jews. They didn't know the addresses of the Jews and, uh, and so on. 
uh, also it turned out uh, and uh, this is pe peculiar one might say but it turned out that the German authorities in uh, Denmark uh, certainly uh, were uh, interested in getting rid of the Jews but they didn't have the same interest in uh, interest in having them transported to the extermination camps in in Germany. Uh, the uh, most important thing for the German authorities in Denmark was to uh, see uh, the the Jews leaving uh, Danish territory. And then uh, most of the Danish Jews, they left uh, Danish territory and escaped to Sweden. Uh, and in this, uh, they were really helped by the um, Danish population. Uh, there was a, a wave of assistance uh, uh, <coughs> during this. Uh, and uh, you can really see that uh, the growth of the resistance in Denmark, uh, resistance like sabotage and so on, the growth of resistance in Denmark at this time also meant the growth of assistance to the Jews. So the uh, Jews were heavily assisted by the German population, by, by the Danish populations, and uh, most of them uh, were uh, rescued. And even the few Jews which uh, who, whom the uh, Germans uh, rounded up and sent to a concentration camp was the uh, they were sent to uh, the concentration camp of Theresienstadt in in uh, Czechoslovakia. And uh, but here they uh, this was not an extermination camp, so they survived uh, even in this uh, concentration camp. So this is really uh, a very uh, good uh, story. Um, the Danish Jews were uh, saved, uh, and one third of the Norwegian Jews were not saved. And I think uh, there were many factors in this, but one major factor was the difference in government, uh, legitimate government uh, in Denmark, which shielded the Jews until February 43, and a Norwegian fascist government who were only too eager to round up the Jews and hand them over to the Germans. Who was Colonel Berger Eriksen? Can you tell us about him? Yes, uh, Colonel Eriksen is one of the heroes of the uh, uh, campaign in Norway in 1940. Uh, the, uh, he was uh, the chief of a, of a fortification uh, in the Oslo Fjord. Uh, the, um, the, German, the German attacking force, uh, which uh, had the task of invading Oslo, had to move up the Oslo Fjord. Now, Oslo Fjord is a very long fjord. Uh, it took several hours for the uh, German flotilla uh, to move up the Oslo Fjord. Uh, and it's, uh, the plan was that this uh, task force would reach the, the capital around uh, five o'clock in the morning and would then immediately spread its troops uh, uh, in order to arrest the king and the government. 
Uh, now this uh, Navy force uh, was stopped uh, at the uh, fortress of uh, Oskarsborg. Oskarsborg is a small island, really two small islands. Uh, and on those islands, uh, there was a, mm, a fortification. And uh, wonders of all wonders, this uh, old fortification was able to uh, put two, uh, to use the two cannons uh, and put the cannonballs into the uh, into the flagship of the flotilla, and also uh, there was a torpedo battery which also sent torpedoes against the flagship of the, um, the flotilla, uh, and so the uh, the most important. Uh, ship of the uh, flotilla, the flagship, uh, it was sunk and uh, several hundred German soldiers were uh, drowned. And the one who was the commander of Oskar Sporig, this fortification at the time, was this Colonel Eriksen. Uh, and, uh, while there were other commanders like him in uh, other fortifications uh, uh, <clears throat> who did not succeed in this and uh, they uh, were confused and didn't know what to do. Colonel Eriksen was very decided and uh, he said that, well, the foreign ships are coming up the Oslofjord, uh, they have to be sunk. Uh, well, uh, this was important because this meant that the uh, the flotilla, the German ships, uh, uh, were delayed uh, for several hours uh, in, uh, the, in their coming to the capital. Uh, they uh, only uh, came to the capital in, in the uh, afternoon. Uh, and this has given the Norwegian authorities, the king and the government, uh, the necessary, necessary time to escape from the capital and to make their decision on whether to uh, surrender or take up arms. Um, so this is why uh, Colonel Eriksen uh, is uh, such a hero, uh, a one-day hero, one might say, because uh, this was his day. 9th of April, when he stopped the German flotilla on its way to Oslo. So the flotilla had to turn around and land its uh, troops uh, on the coast. Uh, and uh, the result being that uh, they got too late to the uh, capital. Who was Kurt Brauer, the German ambassador to Norway? Can you say more about him? Yes, uh, Kurt Breuer was a professional diplomat. He was in the di diplomatic service. He was uh, head of the German legation in uh, in Oslo. He was uh, uh, the German ambassador. The title wasn't used at that time, but uh, it's convenient to call him uh, ambassador. Um, his task uh, was thought to be uh, not too heavy if the uh, German uh, plans for the attack on Norway had succeeded, uh, which meant that the uh, result uh, had been the same as in Denmark, if the, if the regions had 
uh, surrendered, uh, then the ambassador, the ambassador would not have such a heavy task which he was confronted with. Uh, then he, well, he would be the uh, a link between the military forces and uh, and the Norwegian government, uh, being a dip diplomat. Uh, now, uh, the, the German attack uh, didn't go according to plan. Then, uh, to Hitler's surprise, uh, the Norwegian government decided to take up arms against the Germans. Uh, and uh, the government and the king were able to escape. Uh, so the Germans uh, were not able to get hold of them and could not control them. And then... Uh, <clears throat> and the Germans really had no plan for this. They did not have any plan uh, B. They had only their plan A, and the plan A said that uh, we are sure that the Norwegians will not uh, take up arms against us. With our overwhelming force, the Norwegians will certainly uh, surrender. Um, so when the Norwegian did not surrender, uh, the Germans did not uh, really have any plan. What uh, Kurt Meyer was uh, <clears throat> uh, told to do by Hitler was to uh, build up in Oslo uh, a new uh, Norwegian government. Uh, which would uh, take the place, would replace the legitimate government, which had fled uh, Oslo. Uh, uh, and in this, Kurt uh, Boyer had to uh, uh, negotiate uh, with leading circles uh, in Oslo. And he uh, <clears throat> worked on this was partly successful in setting up a new administrative council in the uh, in the capital, but he was not successful in what was most important to Hitler. He was not successful in setting up a new government in Oslo, which uh, would replace the uh, legitimate government which had fled uh, the capital. So when uh, Hitler learned uh, about this, he got furious. Uh, Kurt Dreyer was immediately sacked. Uh, the uh, diplomatic service and the foreign office uh, were relieved of all responsibility for affairs in Norway. And instead, uh, Hitler put uh, uh, up Tarboffen as a vice commissar. Uh, with much more power than uh, any ambassador had. Uh, Kurt Breuer was then called uh, into the army, and in the end, he was taken uh, prisoner by the uh, by Soviet troops in 1945. Uh, was in prison in Soviet Union for several years until 1952, when uh, a good many of the German prisoners in the Soviet Union were released. He was released in 1952. So uh, he, in a way, his his uh, career, his fate was uh, a tragic one. Uh, he was not, not able to live up to the claims of uh, Hitler, uh, 
and uh, Hitler was always uh, very suspicious uh, of the dip diplomatic service and foreign office. And now he thought that, uh, uh, again, the diplomatic, diplomatic service uh, had uh, not provided uh, what he needed. And so he sacked Kotroi uh, and the diplomatic service no longer had anything to say in Norway. Can you tell us about the heavy cruiser Blue Hair? Why is it significant? Uh, Brescia was a uh, very modern uh, heavy cruiser. Uh, it had uh, just been finished before the invasion of Norway and the uh, British first uh, assignment was to participate in the uh, attack on Norway. Uh, it was assigned to the uh, uh, part of the Navy which uh, should occupy uh, Norway. Uh, so, and British was uh, uh, the first ship in the flotilla which moved up the Austrian Fjord on the 9th of April. Um, uh, <clears throat> but when it came to the fortress of Oskarsborg, which I have just, just said, uh, it was sunk. Uh, and it's still, uh, yeah, you can still find this uh, bleacher at the bottom of the Austrian Fjord today. It still lies there. Uh, leaking uh, even oil uh, <clears throat> all along. Um, the bleacher uh, would have been important if it had not been sunk at the uh, Oskarsborg fortress, or if uh, Colonel Eriksen had not ordered his men to shoot uh, it and torpedo it. Um, one question is, why did the Navy put the Blisher at the head of the ships which uh, sail up the Oslo Fjord towards Oslo in the early hours of 9th of April? Uh, why didn't uh, the leading, the commanding officer of this uh, flotilla, why didn't he uh, send one of his smaller boats uh, in the uh, head? Uh, so he could find out whether there would be any resistance uh, at the fortification. Instead, uh, Blisher, as the most important uh, and the, uh, ship and the flagship, headed the whole uh, flotilla. And uh, as the head of the fl flotilla, it was uh, sunk by, uh, by the fortress. Uh, that was the only ship that was uh, hit. Uh, the uh, fortress was not able to uh, hit any of the other uh, boats, which uh, uh, turned around and uh, <coughs> uh, went back a few miles and uh, then landed their troops uh, on the coast. Uh, so the question is, why uh, was uh, the most important ship put in front of the flotilla? Wouldn't it have been better, been better from the military point of view to have it in the rear? And the answer to that question is uh, most likely uh, the German expectation uh, there can, uh, that the Norwegians would not uh, make any resistance. The Germans were certain that 
the um, fortress would not, not have the time, would not have been strong enough, uh, would have been too confused to uh, shoot down uh, the British here. And in, the, in this, uh, they were wrong because of uh, Colonel Eriksen, who was able to have the, uh, the bleacher sunk. And that's really, and that was the fate of uh, bleacher, uh, a modern ship just new from the uh, production, uh, and uh, was sunk at uh, its first operation. Who was Martin Linge? Can you say more about him? Martin Linge. Linge is a well-known uh, name in Norway, at least uh, among the older generation. Uh, he is one of uh, Norway's heroes during the war. He was an actor. Uh, but the important thing about him was that uh, he wa was a liaison officer to the uh, British forces, which landed in uh, Norway. Uh, in April 1940. Uh, they landed at the town of Omdalsnes uh, and then they, these British forces um, were transported southwards to meet the German attack. Uh, so uh, Linge was, as I said, a, a liaison officer uh, to the British. Uh, and in this capacity, he was uh, wounded probably by a German air attack uh, on the place where he was. And so a British hospital ship took him over to Great Britain and he uh, stayed uh, on then in Great Britain. In Great Britain, he was hired by the Special Operation Executive, uh, SOE, which was the uh, newly established British organization for uh, inspiring and supporting resistance in the occupied populations. Uh, Linge recruited young Norwegians for the SOE, uh, and these uh, Norwegians were trained by SOE to become agents, uh, saboteur, saboteurs, radio operators, <laughs> and um, also uh, general soldiers uh, who could participate in the rage, uh, raids which the British uh, launched against the Norwegian coast. And uh, uh, he recruited uh, some 100 uh, <coughs> Norwegians who went into the service of the SOE. Uh, they came later to be called uh, Com Company Linge after uh, Martin Linge. Uh, the, the soldiers uh, of this company took on his name after his death. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was really not a company. It was never put together and never fought as a company. But that was the name uh, these uh, people, uh, these Norwegians who served for the SOE. Uh, got. Well, the uh, the uh, British uh, organized uh, several raids on the Norwegian coast in 1941, 
uh, and uh, some of these agents uh, took part in these raids. Uh, uh, they could help uh, the uh, raiders, the British raiders, when they went ashore because uh, the British wouldn't know the language uh, of the population. So uh, they were in need of some interpreters uh, and people who could lay help in the raids. Uh, Martin Linge, uh, uh, Martin Linge uh, participated in one of these uh, raids among, uh, along with his men, and he was uh, uh, and he met his death uh, on this raid against Morley, which is an island on the uh, western coast of Norway. So he really died uh, very early in the uh, spring of, uh, no, in late 1941. Um, and uh, then uh, soon uh, his name was uh, fastened to the, this company, uh, these men who fought for the uh, Special Operations Executive. Um, so he really uh, didn't live for more than uh, one and a half year, uh, and then uh, met his death. Um, but he became famous, uh, not so much during the war. I don't think his name was mentioned uh, during the war. I'm actually not uh, quite certain about that, but certainly after war, his uh, name was uh, became very famous as the leader, as the recruiter, really, of the Norwegians who went into the service of the uh, Special uh, Operations Executive. What does your book teach us about the history of Marxism, socialism, and communism in Norway? I don't know if it teaches us much about Marxism or socialism, but it certainly teaches us a good deal about communism. Now, if you look at the history of communism in Norway, you find that the communists were an absolutely unimportant minority before the war. It was more of a sect in the 1930s. It had played some role uh, in the 20s, but lost uh, their uh, significant, significance completely in the 1930s. So uh, they were really, uh, really a sect uh, at the time of the war. And also after the war, in the Cold War, the communists uh, again became a sect, a very small party. But during the war years, uh, the communist was uh, an important factor in the Norwegian resistance movement. Um, they uh, advocated a more uh, militant uh, resistance policy than the mainstream resistance, and they always uh, agitated uh, for more sabotage and uh, preferably also uh, guerrilla warfare. And uh, they uh, also were able to engage young people in their uh, setting up their groups and uh, preparing for uh, sabotage, and also uh, preparing for the distribution of their illegal newspaper, uh, which was an important part of their resi resistance. Uh, and they uh, were able to attract a good many followers uh, uh, and became uh, <coughs> uh, rather popular during the war. 
this can be seen in the first elections after the war, because uh, in the first election in 1945, they received 11% uh, of the votes, which is uh, quite good for uh, a party. Uh, which is uh, not a major party, but still uh, well, it was an important uh, uh, party right after the war. And uh, this importance was due to the communists' uh, participation in the resistance movement. Um, they always uh, kept to themselves in the sense that they didn't integrate into the main resistance movement. They, they were sort of an opposition within this uh, movement. Uh, but uh, as I said, it attracted many, especially young people, who were set to resistance work in their ranks. Um, the, uh, they didn't preach communism uh, very distinctly uh, as a communism, as a social doctrine. Uh, they put much more emphasis on the resistance uh, policy, uh, but they did uh, set up uh, uh, study circles, uh, and these study circles, uh, circles also studied Marxism, and, and especially Marxism and, and Soviet communism. Thank you for your generous responses and all the wisdom and erudition you've shared with us during the course of today's dialogue. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Uh, uh, this uh, book, uh, in a way, I thought was really the... Uh, height of my academic career, uh, as it was sort of a book which summoned, uh, summed up everything I had done in the uh, uh, way of history on Norway during the war. Uh, and uh, I really have felt that uh, I don't have to do much more in, the, in, in this field. Also now I am 86 years old, so I, I really uh, can't take on the same workload as before. I do some uh, uh, reviews of books and articles with uh, which other, other researchers have written, but um, uh, I uh, don't really do much uh, original work in, uh, in this field anymore. The, the book was sort of a, uh, the uh, logical termination of a long uh, academic career in this field. Thank you for sharing, and thank you for your kindness and generosity in providing such thorough, conscientious, and detailed answers throughout the course of our dialogue today. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Ola Christian Grimnes. He is Professor of Modern History Emeritus at the University of Oslo. We have been discussing his newly published book and the surrounding subject matter, Norway in the Second World War, 
Politics, Society, and Conflict, published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishers, 2022. Thank you. This has been my hallowed honor. <laughs>